Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Scanning Today's Last Week in AI podcast, where you can hear us chat about what's going on with AI. As usual, in this episode, we'll provide summaries and discussion about some of last week's most interesting AI news. You can also check out our Last Week in AI text newsletter at lastweekin.ai for articles we did not cover in this episode. I am one of your hosts, Andrei Karenkov. I am finishing my PhD at Stanford, studying AI, and I'm currently starting work at a small company using generative AI for some cool things. And I'm your second co- I, I want to latch on to those cool things. I don't know if you'll be able to talk too much about it, but I do want to ask. I'm your second- I don't think we really know what the cool things are exactly yet. Oh, so even I'm kind better. Of- yeah, I'm waiting okay. <laughs> till we figure it out. Okay, so you're like you're even in stealth, like to yourselves. Yeah, like even even you don't know. Okay, that's, that's we we deep. don't know if the things we want to do, we'll actually do because they might be too difficult. We'll see. Okay, very exciting. Well, um, my story isn't nearly as exciting. My name is Jeremy. You probably know if you're from the podcast before. Um, I do a lot of stuff at the intersection of AI and national security. Uh, I have a company called Gladstone AI that I co-founded with a couple of people. And I also have a book. Uh, if you want to check out Quantum Physics Made Me Do It, it's available at fine bookstores everywhere and some pretty pretty crappy ones too, I would imagine, just given you know how distribution works. But if you want uh, anyway, if you want to check that out, feel free. And yeah, I mean Andre, what kind of week do we have? Oh, uh, we have, as usual, a pretty busy week. So when we talk about applications in business, we'll talk about stability AI, having some business trouble, and then a bunch of open source language models and chat assistants coming out, and then a couple lightning round stories and research we'll be talking about the llama effect, how now there's a whole trend of open source alternatives through ChatGPT. And we'll also talk about outer GPT and baby AGI, these so-called autonomous agents. And again, there'll be a few more other stories. Then in policy and societal impacts, we'll talk about a roadmap for getting AI companies in check and China's proposal to manage AI services. And lastly, as always, we'll have art and fun stuff Well, we'll talk about creativity in large language models, some new stuff from Adobe and Meta on animating and video editing. So as usual, a lot of stuff to delve into. Yeah, it's funny. I was looking at like, the, you know, how the balance every week, you kind of get the vibe of like, oh, this is a week where it's just all about chat GPT or it's all about GPT-4. I feel like this week it's more balanced, but there's more AI policy stuff than usual, which is kind of, I mean, it's kind of interesting. It's like less technical too, but it's uh, that, that feels like the vibe of the week. Yeah, I think so. And I think open source uh, also. So yeah. I guess we'll see as we get into it. And one last thing before we do that, though, last week, we I just mentioned that it'd be cool if we got some feedback via comments on lastweekend.ai or via Apple reviews. And we were delighted to see that people actually, you know, wrote some reviews. It was really cool to see, you know, actually two text reviews and a few more just ratings. People, someone said it's required listening to keep up with AI, (laughs) which is very humbling. Uh, And yeah, it's, it's, you know, feels great to be lauded, obviously, but also feels good to know that people are benefiting from this. So yeah, if you are the sort of person who likes to review things, we would appreciate a review as well. 
Yeah. And, and, you know, if, if you have ideas about what you'd rather we cover more or less of, like that stuff is always useful too. And, you know, we're just uh, happy to be here and we'd be having these chats either way, but it's, it's just kind of cool that, uh, that some folks are listening in. So um, do you want to dive in? Yes, let's get into it. So first up in applications and business, we have actually two stories that are sort of related. First, we have Stability AI announces new open source large language model. And second, we have Open Assistant released. This is a YouTube video, and this is supposedly the world's best open source chat AI. So first up, Stability AI, which released uh, Stable Diffusion and I think also MidJourney, has announced that they're releasing language models, which are the backbone of ChatGPT. And these are between 3 billion and... Uh, oh, let me... <laughs> These language models, for now, only 3 and 7 billion uh, sized ones are available. And then later on, they do plan to release larger ones that are more akin to what ChatGPT is powered by. It's all trained on uh, mostly open source data, unlike you know these closed source uh, industry ones. And... They made it available in a few ways, including a public demo, a software beta, and a full download to the model, which for most of these industry models, you know, obviously OpenAI or many other ones, you cannot download the actual language model. You can only access it through an API. Yeah, I found one of the really interesting through lines with these stories, especially this week and last week, is it kind of seems like we're not just seeing a movement towards building open source models. We're seeing a movement increasingly towards like the idea of an open source stack, like an end-to-end -end stack that includes everything from an open source data set. Here they use this data set called the Pile, which is a pretty famous data set in the space. It was created by this grassroots collective of researchers at a, a company or organization called Eloither AI. Um, so you got them kind of opening up this uh, open source data set. You've got open source frameworks increasingly for like reinforcement learning from human feedback, open, all these things leading to like an open source model. And so sort of interesting to see, like increasingly it's getting easier and easier to build models for free, to build performative models for free. And um, so it's not just about the models, it's also about the, the kind of the background, the stack that's leading to the model creation also being open sourced. Yeah, no, that is very interesting. Um, and that is pretty related to the second story here, which is about Open Assistant. So the this one was run by the Leon. I don't know how to pronounce it, but there's this nonprofit organization called Leon, which is focused on basically open source and things. And they had previously... Uh, open sourced a big data set for training these text to image type models that actually was the basis for stable diffusion and some other things. And now they have been working on Open Assistant, which is a language model, but fine tuned for chat interactions. And um, yeah, now they have been working on it for a while. They had a whole crowdsourced uh data set of conversations to fine tune an existing set of language models on. And once again, they're saying, you know, we'll release the code, the data set. Uh, I think they will release models and they have a public demo. So kind of a similar story. 
Yeah, and, and this is also like the the or one face of this whole operation is this pretty pretty um, prominent YouTuber called Yannick Kilcher, and he's um, so he's really big in the open source movement. Sort of got this like techie libertarian vibe to him, and in the announcement video that he put together, it was it was again you know one of these things where the story is. A small part of it is the model, but then a big part of it is like, hey, we made this data set. And this data set, like the models that they release are almost treated more as like proof points for how good the underlying data set is that generated them. And um, this is a, it is a really interesting data set. I think even the way it was collected, right? Because they ended up using um, using this tool. And I'm trying to remember what the, the name of the tool was specifically. Um, uh, was it ShareGPT? I think that was it. Something like it, yeah. Yeah, like basically the idea is, you know, you go and use ChatGPT and you have a cool conversation with it and you want to tell your friends about it. This tool, ShareGPT, allows you to like save and send your conversation. And as a result, they've built a lot of the infrastructure you need to kind of build and curate an open source data set. So that's kind of like the tool that I think is powering a lot of this data collection. And, uh, and it, yeah, the scale is pretty impressive, right? 600,000 interactions captured, 150,000 messages, uh, 35 different languages. All this was done by over 10,000 volunteers. So, you know, pretty sizable effort. Kind of something again in the spirit of like Bloom, right? Where we've seen these big international collaborations come together and create scaled models. Uh, Aloyther AI also comes to mind with this sort of like GPT Neo type thread. So a lot of these open source projects now looking more and more kind of uh, decentralized, more and more collaborative. It's sort of an interesting dimension shaping up here. Yeah, I agree. It's quite interesting to see this as a trend, and there's even more kind of things we can note here. So as with the stable LM thing from Stability AI, which we said, you know, for now you have three and seven billion parameter models, and you eventually you'll have bigger ones. Similarly, here the Open Assistant is uh, in the smaller range of models that can be fit onto one GPU. Uh, so if you have a really expensive GPU, like ten thousand dollars, you can fit a pretty large model. But something like ChatGPT, it's probably running on a essentially a supercomputer, a whole cluster that no single person has in their home uh, at all. So, so far, the paradigm is to have slightly less powerful models. Uh, and we also saw this with Llama, which we'll talk about as the basis for some of this. Uh, less powerful models that can be run basically by people in their home if they have pretty good hardware, but also having APIs and public demos to be able to use it without running it yourself. Yeah, and exactly, and, and there you again see right that libertarian vision of the the like decentralization. You know, a, a GPU in every home running a, a reasonably good language model is very much like you can you can tangibly feel that vision kind of echo through these these products as they're launched. Um, so kind of interesting too, right? From a you know we talk about malicious use every once in a while on the podcast, and like this definitely brings that to mind. You know, the sorts of things that you can do with these models if you go to ChatGPT and you ask it to. I don't know, generate like some kind of malware or whatever, it will generally refuse to do that. Uh, what happens when you start to decentralize access and democratize access to these systems, you're lowering the bar to access for malicious use capabilities as well. And so, you know, always this, this argument happening out there, you know, policy-wise, is it good to proliferate? Is it bad? And ultimately, like, what can we even do? It kind of seems like the toothpaste out of the tube and, you know, like, it's not going to go back in, at least when it comes to models of this size and scale. Yeah, yeah, it's 
It's kind of funny uh, you mentioned Yana Kilcher, who is a YouTuber who has made a lot of uh, explainer videos on different AI papers, and more recently he's been covering AI news, and he sometimes has opinion pieces. Uh, so he made two videos about Open Assistant. He's involved at a pretty high level uh, as one of, I guess, the leaders of a project. And he actually joked in the announcement of Open Assistant being open. He right. was like, well, we won't release it because of safety. Oh, no, I'm kidding. It's all going to be open, right? So it's kind of making fun of the trend in the industry of saying we are not making this available because we want to be careful and make sure it's safe and people don't misuse it and so on. And yeah, that's a mindset that you know many people, including Yannick, have that you know, you should just make it open. And yes, maybe there will be some harmful outcomes, but um, that, you know, that's not a, a good enough reason not to make it open and available for people to do what we want to do with it, which is you can make an argument for that case. Uh, and it's not hard to predict how people would misuse it. I mean, Yannick Ilcher himself made GPT-4chan, which was right. a language model that was fine-tuned to be racist and homophobic and generally terrible and uh, you know do harassment. So once you have this open and anyone can fine-tune it to do anything, you can fine-tune it to be good at phishing or scamming or anything. Uh, but it seems like, you know, maybe we can't really avoid it with these, you know, intermediate sized models. Yeah. And it's, it's a, to your point, right? Like it, it's so interesting as a way of focusing all of the political and like philosophical debates that people have been having over 2000 years about, you know, what to do with weapons, what like, you know, should people be able to have guns? Should they be able to have AI systems that can do eventually like an arbitrary amount of harm? Cause that's sort of what we're talking about as these things get more capable. Like, you know, at what point do you just say, okay, you know, this system can, you know, shut down an entire like uh, CIA website with a couple of clicks. Um, you know, eventually it seems like we're headed towards those systems. At least I don't see a clear reason why that wouldn't happen. And so, like, you know, where is everybody's risk threshold? How do we have a coherent conversation about this? And uh, and, and anyway, it's like you know, we're we're doing philosophy on a deadline, as many people have have said before. Uh, but just sort of focusing all those debates that are are still unresolved after thousands of years. It's sort of a ridiculous time to be alive. Yeah. And again, both of these things happened just this past week, right? <laughs> yeah. So it's it's happening quickly and I'm sure we'll start seeing more and more of these kinds of open source things. And in fact, we'll talk a bit more in the next section about some other open source stuff that has a lot of people excited. But for now, let's move on with another business story. And this is actually also about Stability AI. And this is covering how it is on shaky ground as it burns through cash and looks at a management overhaul. So Stability AI was founded in 2019, and it has been pretty influential. It uh, raised quite a bit of money. It's trying to raise at a $4 billion valuation. I think it raised more than $100 million at this point. And it has released this very influential stable diffusion model and the mid-journey uh, project. But interestingly, according to this article, it as a company is not doing very well. It's not seemingly focusing on being profitable. Uh, mid-journey is kind of still a weird product where you have to use it on Discord, as far as I'm aware. 
And the management seems a little bit um, impromptu, improvisational, not very professional. Uh, so yeah, it's an interesting kind of look inside this pretty important uh, organization. I don't know. What did you take away from this, uh, Jeremy? I mean, my take home from this was just like how weird this is as a company in general. Like every time I, I, I hear something else about stability, I, I, it's just kind of like it gives me the, not not the creeps, but the, the weirds. Like I, 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 I'm confused by them. And like there's a couple of points here that really helped crystallize, at least for me, like where that vibe is coming from. Um, one of which is, like you said, they're, you know, they're they're burning through cash, and there seems to be a lack of like a a coherent, uh, not go to market strategy, but certainly a coherent revenue generation like strategy in the long term. One of the things that they talk about that I found really confusing is how early on in the the kind of history of stability AI, uh, the CEO and and co-founder or founder. Um, who, uh, by the way, is Ahmad Mostak. So he had these two different business models in mind, apparently, one of which was that they would make money by doing consulting and help companies like incorporate AI tools. And then the other, which is kind of, I don't know, red flaggy to me from a startup standpoint, because consulting is like notoriously unscalable. Like you can only scale as fast as you can hire quality talent. And so your margins go to zero and you're basically doing like a, like a mark to labor market play. Um, and then the other strategy they were thinking about was this idea of just like courting sovereign wealth funds by setting up satellite offices in their countries. And in return, the idea is that those wealth funds would invest in stability AI, which, you know, I don't need to say this, but that's not actually revenue, that's investment. So like, I don't get how that turns into a sustainable business. Um, I, I'm, I'm suspicious that I'm like missing something fundamental. Maybe the article doesn't quite give us that like the, the plausible long-term outlook. Maybe that's part of the idea here. But it certainly is odd to, to look at this company you know, that's looking to raise at a $4 billion valuation. They've only been around a couple of years. So like so many of these generative AI companies, we're seeing these massive fundraises on, on the backs of unproven business models. And to me, that's like that's an interesting recipe for potential uh, for potential losses just because we don't know like yes you can reach scale but can you reach scale and profitability and all kinds of reasons to to wonder about what the margins will be like long term especially cuz they're they're open sourcing their models right it's not like that's proprietary info uh, anybody else can in principle serve up one of their models too and then you're competing at the margin on just like who can deliver it cheapest which you know if you believe in uh, competition is for losers, the whole Peter Thiel school, like it's, it seems like a little bit of a dicey, uh, a dicey move. Yeah, I think it's kind of points to another interesting trend. So I do think they have some of their models closed source, like MeJourney V5. They're like more state of art stuff that is their secret advantage, and they do have pretty good quality, like better than. Dali, I would say my journey might be ahead of a pack. But at the same time, we are at a point now where it's not that hard to create a business that offers text to image generation. And you're seeing it all over the place, right? We have it in Bing. Uh, I'm sure uh, there was a website, I think um, ArtStation or, or one of those websites also integrated it, uh, Shutterstock will have it. So AI to image generation is just kind of 
proliferated now it's it's not there's no moat there anyone can build a business about it so the technology itself is not kind of something that you have any sort of holdover right opening eye chat gpt that still is pretty hard to launch something of that quality and scale but having a pretty good text to image model as part of your product is not difficult. So building a business around text to image now seems uh, maybe not not the wisest. And as you said, just by virtue of capitalism, it's going to be a race to the bottom of whoever does it the cheapest and and you know well enough, I suppose, will wind up uh, winning out. And there's going to be probably a, a bunch of players trying to take that spot. Yeah. And, and, you know, as, as image generation gets better and better too, and you can generate better and better images for cheaper and cheaper. I mean, I expect open source alternatives, like, you know, we're, we're going to get to a point where you're generating photorealistic images with free products. And that point isn't going to be that far down the line, especially given the progress we're seeing in like compute hardware. So I don't know, like, I, I just, I'm not sure how long this model, even as it is right now can be sustained, but, um, uh, I've been proven wrong before. I'm just curious to find out how how I'm going to turn out to be wrong this time around. But uh, definitely an interesting situation for mid, uh, for uh, stable, stability AI rather to be in. Yeah, and stability AI, you there's some other kind of interesting uh, aspects to it. So Emma Mostak, the CEO, is pretty active on Twitter, and he you know is is pretty outspoken. He apparently likes to give AI researchers radical independence. So there's the ability to hand off expensive server time to researchers without any oversight, uh, which means you can easily rack up the bills. So it seems like this is running more like a sort of AI research outfit than a business, but still has expenses in the tens or hundreds of millions of dollars, which uh, you know has been very cool for progress. And the company has done a lot to further this text-to-image uh, paradigm. And now they have also released these uh, open source language models, but maybe they won't be around for too much longer if this is kind of their approach. Well, yeah, and that's a really good point too, right? Like when you think about who the the big leaders are in this whole race to AGI or or scale at least, you, you think about you know the open AIs, the deep minds, the anthropics, all of whom sort of have partnerships at the very least, if not are outright owned by massive companies that can offer huge uh, amounts of of compute credits. So like they've kind of got this source of of raw compute juice that I'm just not sure like Midjourney as you know this kind of um, this very different arrangement where they're basically standing on their own without a you know without the same kind of partnership set up for access to compute resources. Um, you know that that seems like it could be a strategic issue long term, but I guess remains to be seen. Yeah, so we'll see where this goes. And on to a few more stories in our lightning round. First up, we have Elon Musk creates new artificial intelligence company X.AI. So last week, we noted how uh, Twitter, at Elon Musk's behest, has been buying up a whole bunch, like thousands of GPUs to do something AI-related. And now Elon Musk has incorporated X.AI, which is 
I doing gonna do something AI related. Uh, it's not clear what, but you know there have been some kind of whispers in the AI community that there's been some recruitment for this for a few weeks. And I guess in an interview with Fox, Elon Musk has mentioned the desire to do to create truthful GPT, which is like GPT, but unconstrained by political bias or something of that sort. I'm not entirely sure. So not too much to say on this yet, except that X.AI will jump in and presumably start training models and doing something uh, this next year. Yeah, he apparently, like Igor Babushkin, who's this like former DeepMind and former OpenAI guy, um, is, is who he supposedly is tapped to lead this, at least according to the article. And um, yeah, it like it, it is really unclear. There, there is a bunch of speculation, obviously, the usual Elon stuff, like he doesn't trust the big labs on safety. He said that a lot about OpenAI, about DeepMind, and, and obviously revealed uh, more about that in his big famous Tucker Carlson interview where he talked about uh, talking to Larry Page at Google and, and kind of finding out that, at least by Elon's light, Larry Page wasn't safety focused enough and that this caused him to start OpenAI. And then, you know, he, he seems to be repeating the same thing. Um, so it's, it's unclear whether the results will necessarily be, be different. Um, but the other thing is, too, he's, you know, talked quite openly about the idea of biases in, like you said, Andre, political biases in, say, OpenAI's models, that sort of thing. So I don't know. One, one of the dimensions this kind of worries me along is like, I, I would hate to see AI become politicized in this way, where you just have like, Kind of left-wing aligned labs and right-wing aligned labs and everybody's shouting at each other and this fundamental question of AI safety, of physical safety, of malicious use of these technologies becomes something that we can't coalesce around. Um, I think there's a, a real risk just given this sort of general direction. And it, it's not just Elon. It's not just like open AI. It's, it's all these things kind of bundled together. So far, we've done a good job of keeping things kind of even keel and being like, all right, like, we, we we sort of agree on some baseline risks here. Um, I just I don't know. I guess my my two cents here here is I I really hope that that trend continues. Yeah, I agree, and I think it's it's been kind of a work in progress. I've seen a little bit just on Reddit. Some people have been unhappy around uh, ChatGPT being a little more safe. With saying, "Oh, I'm a language model. I can't do this. I can't do that." Bard also had quite a bit of that where it will just refuse to do certain things that in some cases it should be able to do and are not bad. So I think there is this, again, libertarian argument of should we you know, really be safe and make the model not say anything bad or contribute to anything bad or should it be a little more open-ended? And that's going to be an ongoing conversation. But also as we get into you know, more than just saying but doing things, that's where AI safety will be big. And uh, I'm, I'm, I think the conversation will evolve pretty quickly. Yeah. I, you know, one last thought on that too, you kind of brought this to my mind, was um, just the idea that maybe the reason that we haven't seen the kind of polarization that we have in other areas in AI is like the problems of safety and the problems of policy in AI are so complicated that you can be on the right and really love the idea of like a libertarian policy but have two completely different views about how things should go. So for example, like, you know, Eleuther AI 
they have this view that, oh, we're going to open source these huge models. Why? Well, so that safety researchers can use them to do alignment research and help with that because they're concerned about catastrophic risk from AI accidents. Um, and they're, they're worried that you know if OpenAI is, has all their models closed and DeepMind has all their models closed, then the kind of academic safety community can inspect them and come up with new ideas. And then on the flip side, you have the like the other libertarian side of the coin, more maybe the like Yana Kilcher side that says, well, you know what? You know, I, I don't believe in this safety bullcrap. I just want everybody to have democratized access to this, you know, no matter what uh, these things can do. And so like it's the same underlying kind of political philosophy, but in one case you care deeply about catastrophic risk, in the other you don't. And you kind of see the same on the left as well, with some people more focused on, you know, uh, say present what they call present day risk, you know, ethics and stuff like that, at the expense of catastrophic risk, other people it's the opposite. So it just seems like so mangled that it, it's difficult for this to become polarized politically because there aren't just two sets of solutions here. Yeah, it's more of a two D grid of concern than a one D, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Next, we have Google's big AI push will combine Brain and DeepMind into one team. So DeepMind has been a subsidiary of Alphabet for a while. They were acquired in 2014, and this is just a big AI research outfit, basically similar to OpenAI, like we discussed before. And now, basically, the relationship between Google and DeepMind will be closer. So... DeepMind will now be Google DeepMind, and presumably they're being folded in to help Google compete against OpenAI and really speed up this, you know, AI productization of research. Yeah, and there's a lot of chatter in kind of the AI safety world about this and and what it means. Um, so just by way of background, like DeepMind was co-founded by Demis Hassabis, who is now, a, or like a, up until 20 minutes ago, was the CEO of, of DeepMind. And Demis is known to be quite concerned about AI catastrophic <clears throat> risk and AI accidents. And, um, and so, you know, for a while, as long as DeepMind had operational independence and was kind of seen as the cutting edge of AI, people in the safety world went, okay, great. You know, one of the key leading labs is headed up by a guy who really worries about catastrophic risk. And his other co-founder, Shane Legg, also had similar concerns. And um, and so that seemed good. So the fold-in now has people a little bit concerned, you know, like, hey, is, you know, is, is Demis now no longer going to be able to exert the same level of influence over his teams? Um, or the flip side is maybe he's being given access to more resources because now Google Brain apparently is going to be moved under that umbrella as well. Um, so it's, it's a bit of a complicated situation, difficult to assess. But I think that the outcome of this might actually be fairly significant and impactful on the course of alignment research and, and safety research within Google uh, writ large. Definitely. Next, we have Amazon AWS expands generative AI efforts with Bedrock and Code Whisperer updates. So the Amazon Web Services, which is a cloud compute provider where basically any company can run computers in the cloud, has announced that it is now offering a few new things as part of its cloud AI services. So one of them is Amazon Bedrock, which is basically given access to various big AI models that are used in stuff like text-to-image and in ChatGPT. Apparently, there's actually a few different foundation models. Uh, so it would support uh, models from AI21, Anthropic, and Stability AI. 
as well as new models developed by AWS, known, <clears throat> known as Amazon Titan. And this will include a text model for content generation and an embedding model. So in general, uh, seems like the cloud AI provider race, which was already ongoing with computer vision and things like that, with Amazon versus Google versus Microsoft, now is going to include this whole chat agent aspect as well. I, I think it was like, wasn't it like a week ago, Andre, that we were talking about um, Amazon coming out with an announcement to appease its employees saying, don't worry, guys, we're doing stuff in generative yep. AI, right? And we, and we were kind of like, uh, you know, it's, it's hard to know, but they seem a little, and now it's like, boom, well, well I guess th there you go. Seems seems like a pretty significant move. And, and also from a, a business model standpoint, it seems like we're learning a little bit about how we're going to see some of these models commercialized. You see AI21 Labs showing up here on the list. Um, there's uh, you know stability AI, Anthropic, and so on. So it seems like these big labs that are building foundation models now are you know they're serving them up themselves, maybe in a in a B two C like uh, business to consumer way. Um, maybe they're you know they're also uh, releasing APIs in, in in other forms and and bundling things into apps like ChatGPT. But they're also now starting to just offload their models to cloud service providers to serve them up for them. So sort of interesting to see like the deepening of the the money making stack around these models as people try to explore different different business models. And this certainly is going to benefit Amazon significantly. And um, and then you know Amazon itself, AWS at least launching Amazon Titan. It, it seemed a little unclear to me how effective, how powerful that set of models would be. I didn't see too much information, uh, at least in the early press releases about that, but uh, it'll be interesting to see how it stacks up. Yeah. And on top of that, they, there was some other announcements. So they announced that they have a new cloud instance that people can use powered by their Inferentia 2 chips which are specialized for AI. So that's another thing we discussed of chips specifically designed for AI. And they also announced that Code Whisperer, their code completion tool, code development tool is being offered for free. So now it's competing with Copilot and Microsoft. So Amazon making some moves for sure. <laughs> And now we have Samsung wants to release EX1, a human assistant robot, this year. So this was at uh, CES, the Consumer Electronics Show, where Samsung Electronics made this announcement. That's kind of it. They didn't <laughs> really have a demo, and it wasn't very specific. So it seems like it might be somewhat BS. But it falls into another thing that happened where it's just generally trying to promote its robot business and has, in fact, invested in the company Rainbow Robotics for $50 million. So probably not very realistic, but may point to future developments from Samsung. Yeah, kind of cool to see the, the form factor if, if in fact... You know the, the photo in the article is to be trusted if that is really the form factor of the uh, of the robot. It you know reminds me of like the um, what was it Seikan and a couple of other models that came out in like 2021 um, for robotic control and, and stuff like that. Where you know there's basically this like vertical you know thing and there's one little arm that comes off it. And I, at the time I kind of wondered like oh okay you know everybody seems to be building systems that kind of look like this. I wonder if what we're learning is. You know, things are going to start to converge towards this sort of form factor. 
I don't know if since then, like the industry's maybe moved on to something else, and this is a throwback thing. But um, it's sort of interesting to note that maybe that uh, that approach is still around. If this photo is even legit, which uh, I'm actually not sure. Do you know, Andre? I think they had um, kind of a demonstration. This is not the supposed EX1 robot. This is a previous iteration, and it's not clear how similar or dissimilar it'll be. Mm. But this is, like you said, a pretty sort of good take of what these kinds of things usually are, which is you have, you know, a wheeled base and you have a sort of little body that's like a column and then you have one or two arms attached to it. So it's not very humanoid at all. And that is just easy to manufacture, uh, easy to program, lots of these sorts of things. Um, So I don't know, maybe we'll get to see what this EX1 robot actually is this year maybe not and moving on to research and advancements where we'll have some pretty exciting stuff to talk about starting with the article the llama effect how an accidental leak sparked a series of impressive open source alternative to chat gpt so llama was this uh model family of models from meta which was Pretty much good large language models, similar to ChatGPT. Initially, they did not want to release the models. They had some sort of um, kind of closed release to researchers specifically. But then maybe predictably, soon after those got leaked and anyone could get them via BitTorrent and a whole bunch of people ended up getting it. Now there's also multiple other uh models that have been built on top of Llama. And Stanford also has their own Alpaca, for instance, which is uh, not based on the BitTorrented one, but still they developed an instruction fine-tuned version of Llama. We already discussed how Open Assistant is uh, built on top of Llama. And there's a whole list of different things that are being based on Alpaca and Llama. So this is really kind of an interesting trend where a single model is spawning all these open source efforts. Yeah. And I think this article was just really useful. It's pretty short and it was really useful as just this like roundup of the whole, like you said, the cluster of different language models and, and other tools that have emerged from this llama leak. And um, I don't know, I think one of the, the take homes for me was just appreciating the level of quality that you can reach with open source tooling. Um, you know, they're, they're talking about uh, Vicuna, which was a model built by this collaboration between researchers at Berkeley, uh, Carnegie Mellon, Stanford, UC San Diego, and so on. And um, and they basically, so they use shared GPT. Maybe that's where I got it from. I'm not sure if uh, earlier when I said that in the context of, um, of uh, open access, um, the open access model we, we talked about earlier, Maybe I was thinking of this. Share GPT anyway is, is how these guys collected their uh, open source data set. Uh, again, that, that is that Chrome extension that allows you to easily share your chat GPT conversations with friends. And, um, and, and anyway, yeah, with this setup, they were able to reach 90% of chat GPT performance. And, um, and they, the way they measured that was by asking GPT-4 to evaluate the text that was generated by their system versus ChatGPT. So th- there was a story there, not only of innovation in terms of like being able to make a you know, ChatGPT-like system, but also just being able to like 
find this evaluation technique where you get GPT-4 to read the, the output of the model automatically and give you a rating. So kind of interesting. Um, yeah, a bunch of other things that were like frameworks that were based on Llama. Uh, so some were more focused on like helping you do uh, you know, reinforcement learning from human feedback or, or you know, similar techniques. But uh, anyway, whole ecosystem emerging from that one llama leak. And, and that's really been one of the big stories of the week. Yeah, just in a matter of months, right? Llama was announced, I don't know, like maybe two months ago. It's it's now hard to imagine, but uh, there's now dozens of open source projects and organizations working on it and pushing it forward. And we're seeing quite a bit of progress just like, Again, it's quite surprising having seen the trend of scaling up and up and up over the past decade, really, and especially the last few years. These models, Llama, are relatively small, right? Chat, the GPT-3 in 2020 was already 170 billion parameters. These are going down to 7 billion, I think maybe 13 billion but because we have these new techniques of training for longer and training with chat data and so on, they can actually be very impressive. Uh, so it's just an, also an interesting thing where the trend is moving away from scale as the only thing towards also having more of a sort of high quality data and good, I guess, training uh, techniques. Yeah, it's that's an interesting question. Is like, what is the status of scaling right now? And I think this story raises that question. I think Sam A, Sam Altman, the CEO of OpenAI, you know, had a an article where he was quoted saying, you know, it's not it's not just about scaling anymore. At least not just about parameter count, model size. Um, other things are starting to matter, and and I think that's where we're going to see a lot of uh, advances coming in the future. And like, I, I actually, I I think that there's a sense in which uh, some of those comments might be uh, exaggerated in that we know scaling laws work. Like we we do know that you know if you increase the amount of pre-training data and the amount of processing power you're using and the model size altogether, uh, you get a better result. But the difference is that if you sorry, I just had a call there. I had to. Ah. Um, but the. Um, but the key is it depends on the kind of model that you use. So some models are just like better um, funnels that channel your raw compute power and your data into more intelligence. And so like it just sort of seems like the model is you can think of it as a funnel and you're playing with the shape of the funnel when you change the the, uh, the, the kind of model you're using. But ultimately, it's about this question of like, how do you throw in more compute? How do you throw in more data and get more intelligence out? And it's just a question essentially of like, what's the bottleneck at any given moment in time? Is data the bottleneck? Is compute the bottleneck? Um, and and how, how do you want to spend your AI training dollar? Yeah. And I think we've seen some interesting findings, especially Chinchilla last year. And I do have to wonder, you know, we have one set of scaling laws or a bunch of set of, of scaling laws, but what if you change your training algorithm? Do you have a completely new scaling law at that point? Right. Right. So there's still some interesting questions. It's true that scaling will get us better performance. We pretty much know that. But there might be now new avenues, such as just having uh, reinforcement learning from human feedback that turn out to be maybe a better investment, like you said. So interesting, interesting uh, directions here. Yeah, well, and I think just as as one last note to piggyback off your reinforcement learning from human feedback comment, one of the things that we seem to be learning as well 
is that models have a lot more capability than we necessarily realize. Like you pre-train them and then you try to prompt them in different ways and you find they can do some things but not others. But then with just a little bit of, of reinforcement learning from human feedback on top, you kind of unlock a ton of value that seemingly was kind of latently contained in the model originally, but you just hadn't found the right way to elicit it. And uh, as we see these models start to shrink, it kind of makes me think along those lines. Like, is it is it really that what's happening is we're just getting better at eliciting the knowledge that was already contained in, in some of those smaller models? Exactly. Yeah, that's what I find really interesting here. Next story is... AutoGPT and Baby AGI, how autonomous agents are bringing generative AI to the masses. So we discussed this a little bit indirectly last week when we talked about Chaos GPT, uh, which was built on top of AutoGPT. So now let's get into it. Uh, so this has been a very big trend. A lot of people are talking about AutoGPT and Baby AGI. Basically, the idea of these models is that right now with GPT or ChatGPT, the whole paradigm is you give it an input, you give it a prompt, some text, and then the model produces some, you know, some text, and then you will then follow up with additional inputs if you want. But basically, it's one input, one output. And what these things are doing, and there's now multiple versions with AutoGPT being sort of the big one that broke through, is allowing it to run recursively. So you say, do this, then there's some structure where the GPT-4 or GPT-3 agent will produce a set of steps that it needs to follow. It can query a bunch of APIs, search for web, etc., and it can tell itself, basically say, okay, now here's a new prompt, uh, figure out how to do this or analyze whether this was correct or not and so on. And essentially they can run in a loop where you give it one input and then it can run continuously until it achieved what you wanted or maybe until it fails or it runs out of time or things like that. But this is... Uh, like the article headline said, is pretty much a different paradigm where now this is an autonomous agent that can run until it decides it meets its goal as opposed to just running until it produces one output and then being done. Yeah, and as a side note, like you have this option to run it in continuous mode, which like just be careful about your cloud compute bill because <laughs> 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 like anyway, people are sharing funny stories about how because it just it runs in this open ended way and can keep generating like next steps for itself. If you don't tell it to like stop, it you know it can just keep running up the bill. So it's sort of funny, but. But yeah, no, a new fundamentally a new paradigm, very, very interesting one. And one where we're starting to see the line between like what is an autonomous AI and what is not an autonomous AI get really fuzzy, right? Because we have like GPT-4, which is the thing that, you know, you give the system an instruction, GPT-4 gives you the list of steps, and then it farms out each of those steps to like another instance of itself and has a little dialogue with, with that instance. And so like overall, it kind of seems like a thing that's just going off autonomously on the internet and doing a bunch of stuff. But then the individual components that are actually doing the work 
aren't quite autonomous. I mean, they are just, you know, like these same old systems like ChatGPT, you know, taking a prompt, generate an output. And so it's sort of, anyway, I think an interesting blurred line, um, and it, it sort of makes me wonder how far this paradigm will be able to go. Uh, along that dimension, one thing that comes to mind is just the context window, right? Like the idea that models like GPT-4 have this like maximum amount of almost like RAM, the maximum amount of text that they can read at any one time. And that in some sense limits the complexity of a thought that they're able to have, very roughly speaking. And so when we look at like a very long chain of actions that these models have to execute, uh, it kind of makes me wonder if the, the, the failures of an auto GPT actually happen when you start to bump up against like that context window limitation. And as the context window gets longer, we might just see, you know, more and more complex chains of actions become possible and executable by something like auto GPT. Exactly. Yeah. And this article does note that, you know, this is very young. It's only been a thing for like a week or two. Uh, very, very hyped up on Twitter and elsewhere. I think out of GPT now is more GitHub stars than PyTorch, which is insane. <laughs> Ouch. But uh, yeah, they still have all this sort of wacky behavior. So they can forget the initial thing uh, you said. Here they had one example where... Uh, this person asked it to do some market research on waterproof shoes, but then the LLM ended up just focusing its attention on shoelaces. Uh, it can also wind up going in a loop, right? So this lack of long-term memory and pretty limited amount of short-term memory, you can call it, it's just like the amount of text it can uh, have as an input is kind of a big limit. And this actually brings us back last week. We talked about this research paper where they populated this virtual town with generative agents. Right. That was very cute. And it kind of was the same idea of like they prompted the GPTs to be like, pretend you're this person. And then they continually prompted them to make them agents. Except in, in that paper, they did some more sophisticated stuff with having a whole like memory module where you can write and read and, and stuff like that. So this is definitely pointing to a direction that I think we'll be exploring for a while in terms of how to actually agentize pre-trained models that are not, you know, autonomous. And um, I don't know, this, this could get very powerful very quickly, it seems like. Yeah, it, it also kind of suggests, at least in this configuration, one way that we could maybe measure progress towards AGI in a, in a fairly interesting way. Like basically, what is the maximum number of chained steps that your system can successfully execute? Essentially, what's the maximum tax, task complexity that your system can execute uh, for, you know, for, for a given system? So like GPD-4, you know, maybe it's able to succeed at, at tasks that, you know, are broken down to X many substeps. You scale it more. You increase the length of the context window, and then you can increase that complexity. Um, you know, it, it's one of these perennial questions: How do we measure progress towards something as general as AGI? And uh, I don't know. I, this may be a, a a random off the top idea, but could be an interesting uh, dimension to look at. Could be, yeah. 
And I guess just one last thing I'll mention, aside from the loop and recursive and you know autonomous stuff here, AutoGPT also points to this other very important trend, which is giving these language models access to APIs. So they, yeah. as part of a project, you're able to query the web and, and do various things like that, which ChatGPT was not initially able to do. That is another thing that will really supercharge the abilities of these models once we figure out how to do it properly. Yeah, and actually interesting safety debate over that whole thing too. There's a lot of people in the safety community pretty pretty freaked out about the idea of just like hooking up a model like GPT-4, for example, that like earlier in its training process, before we had reinforcement learning from human feedback applied to it, was like threatening users through Bing chat and, and doing all kinds of stuff. So it's like, all right, let's give that thing access to uh, access to all these tools and, and so on. So sort of interesting, like very inside baseball debate happening right now in AI safety as well. Yep. And on to the lightning round stories. We have researchers use machine learning to improve the first photo of a black hole. So I think many of us may remember a few years ago, four years ago, that's crazy. <laughs> we had this first photo of a black hole that was this really blurry image that was very exciting at the time as being that first image. And now there's a new iteration of it that is less blurry. Uh, that was just released in a report from the Astrophysical Journal Letters. And they developed a whole new uh, machine learning model called Primo that is specialized for recovering high-fidelity image for uh, black holes. It was done in, in simulations of black holes. So, yeah, it's you know exciting for astrophysicists, I assume. Yeah, I mean, this is the one where I, I really wish that AI interpretability was further along than it is. Because wouldn't it be cool to like crack that model open and understand better what it had learned about physics in order to do this? Because like pre presumably this like model has learned stuff about astrophysics. There's latent knowledge embedded in there that you know might complement some of the stuff that we're we're doing on, kind of in, along other dimensions of astrophysics. So. Anyway, I, just something that comes to mind every time I see it. It's like, man, I'd love to know what that model knows. And someday, maybe. Maybe. Next story, tennis robot could pave way for advancement in fast movement robotics. This is from Georgia Tech, uh, the social school. This is from Georgia Tech, the school of interactive computing. And they developed this robot named Esfer, which is the experimental short which is an experimental sport tennis wheelchair robot. And that name is a homage to renowned wheelchair tennis player, Asfer Vergier. So you can think of this as sort of an arm mounted on a motorized wheelchair that can drive around and hit tennis balls as part of tennis. Uh, and there's a whole video on it. It's, it's pretty cool looking and does kind of address this challenge of well, how do you make a robot able to do something as mobile and fast-paced as tennis? And did they say anything about the, the performance of this thing? Like how, how successful it is at playing tennis? I think it's not nowhere near human level. Uh, it's capable of tracking a ball, which is in itself pretty complicated. They 
have orange balls here because that's easier to track. Uh, so it's it's kind of good as a practice partner, but it's not going to outperform many human athletes anytime soon. If, if you listen very carefully, you can hear Serena Williams breathing a sigh of relief. <laughs> yeah. And now we have OpenAI surprises open source community unveils consistency models. So OpenAI has pretty much turned away from that open uh, label, as many people have joked for years. But they have just released a new paper and code for it uh, called consistently models. So these consistency models are kind of iteration of the future models, which are how uh, image generation usually works that address one of the issues or or uh, limitations of it without getting into technical details the fusion model is kind of unnoise denoise some data with multiple iterative steps and this integrates another very cool idea that has been kind of uh, being developed for a few years called probability flow uh, ordinary differential equations, which is basically simulating a continuous process. So with the integration of these two things, you can sort of simulate an arbitrary amount of denoising at a time instead of just one pass. It's pretty technical, but the upshot is this is a better model for generating images according to OpenAI. Yeah, and I wonder about the compute efficiency too, right? I mean, if the idea is skip skip a bunch of intermediate steps in the diffusion process, like it do, do, actually, do you know if they mention like what the compute efficiency is relative to a standard diffusion? So they say in the paper abstract that they demonstrate they perform uh, existing distillation techniques for diffusion models and one and few step generation. So that's. Uh, basically taking a diffusion model and making it not iterative, that's called diffusion. And they say when trained as standalone uh, generation, things also outperform single step, non adversarial. So basically, I don't know what they focus on the efficiency aspect, but they do say that compared to something that can generate things in one pass, if you just train it from scratch, or if you... Um, just distill what these existing models can do, it's better. So I would assume that it's probably equivalent compute to other approaches that do this one-shot generation, but better. Yeah, which I mean, th- that itself, you know, makes me think about proliferation. Obviously, every time the the algorithms improve, like you you sometimes like this can can decrease the cost of computations and democratize access. Um, so anyway, just like as, as we're thinking about the companies like Stability AI is like, you know, if techniques like this keep keep piling on, uh, kind of makes you wonder, again, what happens to those margins if you can just generate high quality images on your on your laptop one day? Not that we're there, but it's just kind of anyway. Interesting to see the the forward progress in that space. Yep. And last research story, we have model that uses machine learning methods and patient data at hospital arrival predicts strokes more accurately than current system. So we've discussed this sort of thing previously. There was a model that predicted the likelihood of sepsis when you entered a hospital. And this is a similar idea that there's a prototype that foretells uh, strokes more precisely than existing models. 
So the idea is that when you enter a hospital, when you are admitted, there is a bunch of data that can be used to predict if you're kind of, I guess, having a stroke or about to have a stroke. And they showed that this prototype is quite accurate, has 84% precision uh, in predicting strokes. So another example where, you know, you can automate at least sort of having some system to predict the likelihood of something and whether we should be concerned about it based on just the data that you can get access to as soon as you get to the hospital. Yeah, there's so much low-hanging fruit for this sort of thing. And, you know, it, it again, my mind keeps going back to this idea of like interpretability, man. I wonder what this what this thing has learned, what heuristics uh, it's using, let's say, to, uh, to to make it to draw its conclusions. But um, yeah, and, you know, you can imagine people debating whether whether it's okay to use something like this, uh, if the mistakes that it makes are simply different from those that our standard process makes, like, how do you trade that off? It's the self-driving car thing all over again. But uh, really cool to see those advancements for sure. Yeah, and um, this is just still a retrospective study, so it's not been deployed anywhere. This is research paper to be clear, but we've already seen some of these sorts of things be FDA approved. So I think it's part of this general story of an ongoing uh, kind of very widespread effort to research into ways that AI can be applied and eventually to push it out into the open in a safe way. And now let's talk about policy and societal impacts and safety. So... First, we have a story, finally, a realistic roadmap for getting AI companies in check. And this is a roadmap from the AI Now Institute that has, you know, a kind of pretty specific proposal, which I think, Jeremy, you have quite a few thoughts on. Yeah, I mean, it was, um, uh, yeah, I have I have a couple of disagreements with it personally, but I, I think it's interesting to look at, I, you know, one of the, the key themes that they highlight here is that you know, right now we live in a world where companies like OpenAI and Microsoft can just release their systems at their own discretion. And they're sort of flagging this idea that, hey, maybe we should be flipping that paradigm. Maybe it should be up to the companies to show that their systems are safe before they get to release them. In other words, that the burden is actually on the companies to demonstrate safety and security. And um, you know, interesting. It is an interesting way to go, and uh, certainly for the more long-term risks, things like AI accidents, that seems like a really good idea, and ultimately probably would be necessary. Um, but another approach that they take too is, you know, asking this question: Should this AI tool even exist? And you know, they're giving examples of like all these controversial systems that have been used in the past, AI systems that are designed to predict people's political views, you know, based on like images of them or or their sexual orientation and things like that. Um, and that is an interesting conversation to have as a society. It's a little unclear to me how robustly it can actually affect the world if we live in this kind of open source. Uh, universe that we seem to inhabit, where if you want to build a model and just kind of like you know, let loose and let anybody use it. That that seems to be on the table right now, um, but still, sort of, I, I thought some some interesting interesting ideas about philosophically how to approach this. It does take a pretty antagonistic tone uh, to the tech industry, which 
I'm not sure is super constructive. I mean, they're, um, you know, they're, there's almost a, a vague sense that they're attributing a kind of malice to like open AI. Um, and, uh, and I'm, I'm not sure that that's quite, quite right. I mean, we've seen open AI open up voluntarily, uh, to audits from companies like the alignment research center and people focused on AI ethics, um, and, and do frankly internal audits that are more robust than, I think anything that a government would be able to uh, to propose or execute on, um, but but again, I think this is just an interesting conversation starter. Always always good to like look at these policy proposals as people try to scramble to figure out what the hell to do about more and more powerful AI systems. Yeah, I think it's definitely at least a good part of a conversation that is somewhat different from any other proposals we've had before. Uh, in this one, I think it's kind of titled Confronting Tech Power, and it focuses on this notion of big tech and talks about all the sorts of ways that you can uh, limit the powers of these companies or, you know, have oversight, um, which definitely, I mean, will need to be part of a general strategy, right? Because it's true that right now Google and uh, Meta and uh OpenAI, obviously Microsoft, all of these are the key players that have most of a say of what AI can or cannot do, at least at the cutting edge. Uh, as we discussed before, in terms of AI safety, that's not the whole picture. Now we have open source models. Now we have you know, other aspects to it as well. But at some point, we will need regulation. That much, I think, is obvious to just about anyone. And... Uh, it doesn't seem like very proposed, maybe very realistic approaches to regulation, which I think is maybe still the open question. Yeah, yeah, very much so. And I think one of the the, the interesting axes that's starting to form is like between people who say, "Well, look, regulation should be focused on you know breaking up big tech or or uh, democratizing AI development to make sure that." You know, Elon Musk is in this camp. He seems to be at least where he's saying, "Look, I don't want just Microsoft, just Google controlling like the AGI," um, which I definitely empathize with that concern. But it, as we've talked about, I think last week, I, I think that is at, at a certain point it is uh, in conflict with the idea that having a bunch of labs all co-developing AGI in a context where we have reason to believe AGI is intrinsically a dangerous technology, potentially very dangerous technology. Um, is not necessarily a good thing. Like you, you probably want a small number of leading labs so that they can, you know, not perceive that they're in a race to release as fast as possible and invest their marginal dollar in uh, safety and their marginal time in safety. So it kind of seems like these two ideas, like yes, let's have everybody compete and also let's make AGI safe. You know, at a, at a certain point, we're going to have to figure out uh, as a civilization, like which which one of those two options we want to lean into. Um, and it's not not super obvious, uh, yeah, that that we're on track to have that coherent conversation just yet. Yeah, and if nothing else, it's good that there is a support with a lot of different thoughts on different aspects of it, with different spotlights. We really can't get into all of it. It's like a hundred pages <laughs> of a report. It has stuff like the climate costs of tech, tech and financial capital. Uh, data minimization as a tool for AI accountability, et cetera, et cetera. There's a lot of stuff going on. So as the article title uh, notes, at least it's a realistic roadmap in some sense, even if 
the specifics of some of these suggestions may not be very realistic. I do think we haven't seen too many of these kinds of kind of more comprehensive uh, approaches to the non-technical side of AI safety. So it's good yeah. to see this. Um, and actually, you know, speaking of very uh, bold policy measures and proposals to deal with AI. We do have this story like coming out of China where the Chinese government or the CCP is coming out with these um, these new proposed regulations to deal with generative AI. And it's, you know, again, sort of similar actually in spirit to what we just talked about, the, the um, article uh, that, that was looking at, anyway, having companies have the burden of proving that their systems are safe. Because here, the Chinese Communist Party is looking to have companies submit what they call security assessments to authorities before they launch generative AI tools to the public. Um, China is a big player in AI. You know, if, if you're not following the space, there are a couple of big companies, Baidu, SenseTime, Alibaba. Um, these all have their own chatbots or their image generation tools out there. And I think one of the, the big take-homes here is just how onerous these regulations will be if they're actually implemented. And you can sort of see a, a geopolitical reason, or at least a, a political reason, why that has to be the case. You know, the Chinese regime obviously is super authoritarian. We've seen them crack down on free expression. You can't mention the Tiananmen Square massacre within China's borders. If you do that on social media, your stuff gets taken down, blah, blah, blah. And so in that context, they simply cannot allow large language models deployed by private companies to occasionally mention things like Tiananmen Square or some of the you know, abuses of, uh, of the Chinese Communist Party, Uyghur Muslims, Tibet, you know, that sort of thing. And so what they're saying in the, in the document, in the regulations, is companies have to ensure that AI does not call for the, quote, subversion of state power or the overthrow of the ruling Chinese Communist Party. Uh, it must not incite moves to split the country or undermine national unity, uh, produce content that's pornographic, or encourage violence, extremism, and so on. And I just think, you know, having seen what we've seen about jailbreaks, right, ways of getting chat GPT and similar tools to generate content that they're not supposed to generate, it kind of seems inevitable that we're going to see jailbreaks of any system that's built by a private company in China, and therefore that this standard is in practice impossible to actually apply, to actually live up to. And so it's an interesting question as to what this does to potentially stifle private sector innovation in China on AI. And I mean, the last thought I'll toss in there is, of course, these regulations, I don't expect that they'll apply to the Chinese military or to the Chinese government itself. So of course, we can expect them to the extent that they can to continue pursuing with, with um, kind of deploying their own systems regardless of, of their adherence to these things. But it's kind of interesting to see anyway, the, the ecosystem effect of these regulations. Yeah, it seems like a pretty hardline approach. Uh, they, there's this need for security assessments, but then also if it does anything wrong, we'll be facing large fines, maybe a criminal investigation. You will need to update your model. And on top of that, what I found kind of interesting is this notion that the service providers must require users to submit their real identities and related information. Right. So if you want to jailbreak a model to say something that's against the Communist Party, well, if they have your real identity, now you're in trouble, right? So it's a very, very maybe extreme or maybe definitely 
uh, a strong response to making sure that not only will these models be developed in a certain way, when they are out there, they are not misused. And if they are misused, there will be consequences and they will need to be changed. So uh, maybe not too surprising, but still, I guess, kind of hard to imagine given, you know, the complete lack of government oversight we have over here so far. Yeah, actually, really good insight on, on the idea of uh, the connection with, with the um, revealing of the identity of the user. Because, yeah, you're right. It kind of flips the whole paradigm. It's like, okay, whose fault is it really? Um, it is interesting, though, that this, well, hopefully I'm saying from an alignment standpoint, puts some kind of economic pressure, too, on you know the Baidus and the Tencents of the world to try to figure out how to control their AI systems better. Um, unfortunately, even if that control you know ultimately is in a direction that I might find politically very undesirable. That is like you know towards the CCP way of thinking about things, um, but it, it sort of reminds me. There's a a research team in California uh, called um, uh, oh god uh, uh, oh called Redwood Research. That was it. Um, so it's an AI safety research team called Redwood Research, and one of their big lines of effort. They're really focused on AI catastrophic risk. And, and one of the key tasks that uh, I remember that they highlighted as a goal was to make an AI system that never makes certain categories of mistakes, like a language model that never says anything racist, like under any circumstances, or a model that always, let's say, um, I don't know, references uh, some, you know, references poetry or something in some way in its answers. So finding ways to control AI systems. Uh, in that absolute way, they consider to be a really important dimension of solving the full alignment problem for various technical reasons. And so, I don't know, the upside of this is like, <laughs> maybe this pressure ends up causing some genuine innovation on alignment, and uh, that would be a good output, but how it's actually used, obviously, is is it a whole other question, and with the CCP at the helm, yeesh. Yeah. I, I can imagine a less extreme version of this sort of regulation, you know, in the Western world. But uh, yeah, it's it's kind of interesting to imagine the government involvement that will surely come, you know, soon enough everywhere. And on to the lightning round. First, we have AI could lead to a nuclear level catastrophe, according to a third of researchers, a new Stanford report finds. So we already covered this Stanford report, the 2023 AI index report, where we covered kind of a variety of things it included. And this article kind of highlights a small bit from it where they surveyed a bunch of AI researchers, essentially about how worried they are. And... There is a whole, uh, you know, range of researchers where at least 58 of the researchers surveyed called AGI an important concern. Uh, there is research moving from generative AI to AGI, according to again 57, and as it said, a large fraction are worried to the extent that there would be like nuclear level catastrophes, basically a lot of people dying as a result of AGI. Yeah. And it's one dimension that I found kind of interesting about this discussion too, is like, we're used to talking about race dynamics between the companies building the models. So, you know, Meta and OpenAI and DeepMind and Google and so on. 
Um, but they were highlighting the risk coming from race dynamics between companies that want to launch new GPT powered products. So, you know, if you imagine like, I don't know, Netflix or something wants to launch a movie summarization model or something like that, you know, it, it's not just on the model building end. There's also this race on like applications. Let's get the newest, potentially most untested system out there in the wild fast as possible. And, um, and anyway, tying that into this idea of, of the risk, you know, as you might discover, oh shit, you know, this model was poorly characterized and we put it in charge of something important and then bad things happen. So um, another interesting dimension to that, uh, that risk story. Um, yeah, I, I think a last thought on this one too was who you ask about AI safety matters a lot. You know, here we're turning to Stanford uh, AI like researchers in general. Uh, if you pull the AI safety community, you will get even higher <laughs> rates of concern about this stuff. And then if you pull, you know, maybe other universities and groups, you'll get you know, very different uh, responses as well. So always interesting to look at like, who are the groups that are actually being pulled? What is the extent of their, their potential knowledge about things like alignment, things like malicious use? Um, Stanford, obviously, very educated crowd, no doubt. Uh, as, as Andre, you know all too well. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah. And now a uh, slightly different story that is kind of a business of um, research and business. Business Insider had the story inside the AI talent wars. Tech companies are ransacking university AI programs at Stanford, MIT, and Cornell in search of rare talent. This is a pretty lengthy story that kind of highlights this whole issue that has been the case for a while in AI academia and is uh, now probably just going to keep accelerating, which is a lot of people that are doing a PhD or considering doing a PhD wind up leaving the research academic world to go to industry and either join something like DeepMind to do AI research as part of industry or just join something like Tesla to work on full self-driving, like Andre Kapafi did, for instance. And this is kind of a fun article that just highlights the different ways that companies are trying to recruit people. There's often company-sponsored parties at AI conferences, as, as many people know. The pay rate is pretty nice. You get a lot of swag. Uh, so it's not that different, uh, generally tech as a whole has a lot of this sort of recruitment uh, push, but I think in AI, the fact that so much industry is present now within academia is a general trend that is pretty different from elsewhere. Yeah, as I was reading this, I, my mind kept going to, I can't wait to ask Andre on the podcast what his experience of being recruited and poached was like as he got to the end of his PhD. So maybe that's my question to you, Andre. Like, have you experienced any of these things? Like, what's what's the vibe like as a Stanford student? Uh, what was it like? I definitely started to receive more emails from just random places. I think Tesla might have reached out at some point. Uh, it wasn't. I don't want to give a wrong idea. I don't think it's something ridiculous, right? Where people are knocking at my door uh, or sending me unsolicited gifts. It's it's more akin to like if you go to an event, then there will be industry presence and they might give you 
some cool stuff like this article highlights a Hot Wheels toy car that <laughs> had Tesla Model X emblazoned across it. And of course, you get a lot of like water bottles and T-shirts and, and things like that. So, um, yeah, it's it's been the case for a while. And I don't know if it will become even more prominent now as ChatGPT has heated everything up. Uh, it's not even clear that it matters too much if you're a PhD at this point. You may just need to be a good software developer, really. But it's it's a fun story, and it has it's quite lengthy, so I'm sure there's a lot of uh, you know silly stuff that you can take away from it. Yeah, well, I mean, but that's a dimension too that I don't know. I'd, I'd love to explore at some point. Is you know, as we see foundation models come out and the sort of like centralization of focus on a smaller number of more scaled models, like what does that do to demand for the AI talent that's actually, <clears throat> that's actually building these models? Like my understanding is what we're starting to see is the small number of people who are like building the GPT-4s are just getting compensation packages that are absolutely stratospheric. And like, you know, literally like in the tens of millions, I think there was an article about this uh, at OpenAI. Um, I hope I'm not mis misquoting that, but like stuff like that. Uh, and and then maybe the you know the long tail it's sort of less less clear what happens there but uh, the, the 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 impact of scaling on the you know the requirement for AI talent is something that I think is a really interesting story that's still unfolding. Definitely, yeah. I think at some point it's more about infrastructural knowledge than you know technical AI knowledge. And right. We'll see. And then we have this kind of societal impact and creativity story. Photographer admits prize-winning image was AI generated. So a photographer who won the creative open category at the Sony World Photography Awards, uh, this is the German artist Boris Edgelson, uh, basically released a statement and said that he applied as a cheeky monkey with an AI-generated image that was not real. And this was, I guess, kind of meant as a subversive uh, statement to say that these award, awards and different, I guess, competitions are not ready for dealing with AI images and photography and argued that there should be different entities. They should be different awards, things like that. Uh, so definitely a pretty, you know, funny stunt in a way to to broaden the discussion around this. And uh, you look at the image, and you know, I can definitely imagine not realizing it's it's like this black and white photograph. It has. Uh, it's not like very high resolution. It looks like it was taken with an old camera. It has like a filmy aspect to it. And yeah, you really can't obviously see that it's AI. Although if you look closely, maybe you can start to doubt it a little bit. Yeah, there's a little like streak of light that seems maybe maybe a little unphysical, but it's so hard to tell. It's this like, yeah, some a couple of women who look like they have, you know, sort of like 1940s era haircuts. And, to and me... Very if you look at the right shoulder uh, of the figure in oh, the foreground, hand. the hand positioning doesn't necessarily make yeah. physical sense. So you really have to start thinking about like the geometry of what's going on. Yeah, good point. Again, the hand. The hand is the giveaway. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, w I wonder how long that'll that'll remain the case. But uh, 
But yeah, I mean, interesting also that he ended up turning down the award that he supposedly had won here. So kind of a, a bit of a, a philosophical position that, hey, this should not get an award maybe as part of the subtext. Um, yeah, I mean, part of that debate that we've we've been having or that discussion we've been having the last few weeks is like, what is art? What is it to different people? What should be recognized and what shouldn't be? And maybe it is, you know, make different leagues for this stuff and hopefully find a way to get people to prove that if they're submitting to the human generated league, like it's uh, it actually is. But uh, a lot of interesting challenges for art, for publishing, for music, all, all those different things uh, uh, in the next couple of months and years. And actually, just let's move on to the last section where we only talk about art and fun stuff. I guess that was already sort of part of it. The first story we have is exploring creativity in large language models from GPT-2 to GPT-4. This is a bit more of kind of a blog post that does a lot of reflection on where we have been and how we can think about creativity. And it tests these few different models, GPT-2, GPT-3, GPT-4, and, you know, had some interesting conclusions where GPT-4 actually had some interesting weaknesses and some was less variable than GPT-3 in its performance. And yeah, it's kind of a pretty interesting analysis of creativity that goes beyond a lot of what I've seen so far. Yeah, and it picks up on a, another trend that we've started to see more and more, which is people subjecting AIs to what historically would have been psychological tests or, or IQ-like tests that would have just been given to human beings. And um, you know they, they go through three different ones in this blog post. One of them is this uh, thing called a remote, uh, remote associates test. I don't know if that's remote association test supposed to be, or if that is actually the name. But the idea is you get um, you get three words like dream, break, and light, and you're supposed to come up with a, another word that links those words together, right? So in the case of dream, break, and light, the the word that you're supposed to choose apparently is day. So you have daydream, daybreak, and daylight. You know that kind of is a common theme there. And they, you know, they throw this at GPT-2, GPT-3, GPT-4, and kind of see what sticks. And the the almost weird thing was that the the errors that these models made actually kind of made sense. Like we're used to AIs making mistakes that make no sense whatsoever. In the context of this sort of test, it seems like you can kind of empathize a little bit. You know, that the choices that you know GPT-4 would would make, you kind of be like, oh, okay, you know, I, I see. Even though you got it wrong, I see see where you were coming from there. Um, so that was one test. There was another where the the challenge was to produce as many alternative uses for everyday objects as possible. So you know, if you're given like you know laptop, like what could you use that for? Well, you know, maybe a body shield, maybe a plate, or like a piece of wall art, things like that. Um, again, the idea is just like measure the creativity of the the system and its responses, and and to do that, just get a little bit technical. They, uh, they looked at, in this case, you know, if you said, oh, we could use a laptop as a plate, a body shield, or wall art, you might look at the semantic distance between those terms, plate, body shield, and wall art. And basically, you're measuring creativity based on how different those different use cases are. So I don't know, I thought it was kind of interesting, um, you know, as a way of, of poking and prodding at these systems. And, uh, and it circles back to a pretty fundamental question about what is AI creativity, right? Is it just 
mixing together ideas that already existed in, in the, the corpus that the system was trained on, or is it something else, right? Interpolation between ideas or creation of new ideas. Are those things really different? Yeah. So it's, again, as we keep coming back to, you know, it's part philosophy, part science here. <laughs> and uh, the uh, post does kind of make clear that the, this is not claiming to show how creative the models are, but rather to measure the level of creative process present in the generations. Uh, and yeah, it is interesting that more and more to understand the models, like you say, we need to use more common psychological tools as opposed to like technical computer science tools. Uh, this is on the art fish intelligence substack, which I found pretty uh, <laughs> pretty amusing. Uh, and again, this is quite long, so we can't get into all of it. Uh, as usual, you can find links to all of these articles on lastweekin.ai. So make sure to go there and follow up and, and read through it if you think this is interesting. And now we have... AI-generated Wake and the Weekend song goes viral. So there's a new song called Heart on My Sleeve that simulates uh, the two stars trading verses about <laughs> Selena Gomez. Uh, and this was presumably created with uh, Eleven Labs or some sort of AI that was fine-tuned specifically to do their voices. Um, this was later pulled down from Spotify and elsewhere, but as you can imagine, it's pretty impressive. And I think it's pretty easy to, you know, find this amusing where you have these two really big stars on the same song singing about something kind of absurd. But you know who's not impressed and who doesn't find it amusing? Drake. Drake mm. doesn't find it amusing. Apparently, he made this complaint to Universal Music Group, uh, basically saying, like, to Spotify and Apple Music, saying, like, yo, uh, you guys got to prevent AI from, like, accessing your libraries. And just generally pretty upset, which, like, I definitely get. You know, somebody cloned my voice and did something like this. I mean, I guess I wouldn't care because it's not my livelihood, but kind of shows you how close to home some of these technologies are hitting. And this is for, like, influential pop stars and stuff. You know, uh, you know, like robocalls and, and things like that, automating sales processes and, and all that might get less less attention in the short term. But uh, a lot of people are <laughs> in the line of fire these days. Yeah. And I guess we should note that it is not entirely sort of realistic. You can, yeah. If you know AI sound, you know, there's a sort of like weird glitchy, sort of high frequency feel to it so it doesn't you could sort of tell that this is probably ai as you could with ai images you know until recently but uh, clearly this is just an example where in a few months or a year this kind of thing will sound like a real song and all these platforms spotify etc will have to really figure out what to do with that and speaking of companies having to figure out what to do with AI. Adobe, that hasn't been doing that much so far, has now launched AI-powered te text-based video editing. So Adobe has Photoshop. It also has Premiere Pro, which is 
often used for you know editing films or commercials, anything really professional. And now they have some features that can do certain things. So, so specifically, this text-based editing is basically moving around parts of the uh, video by looking at the transcript of what was being said. So there's uh, automatic analysis and transcription, and then editors and producers can copy and paste sentences in different orders to move around video. This is actually something that an existing company, Descript, has been offering for a while as its own video editing service. So, uh, yeah, and you can also just search in the transcript window to jump to different places in the video, and there's some other things that aren't related. So, yeah, I'm actually kind of excited by this. I think I have made YouTube videos in the past and have, you know, played around with editing in Adobe, and this power, this idea of text-based video editing is pretty powerful, and um it's kind of surprising it took Adobe this long, to be honest, but it's exciting to see it uh, get here. You just had two like amazing drive-bys at Adobe there where you started. I think your comment started with like Adobe, <laughs> comma, that hasn't done much lately, comma. And I was just like, oh, oh, so hard. But yeah, no, I mean, I, I totally agree. I haven't, I haven't actually used Adobe for, um, for editing work, but I, I do a ton of like video editing stuff. And to your point, this, this really feels like one of those uses of AI that is very in tune with the way you actually need to uh, to use these systems like the number of times where i've had like a you know a video and i'm like i want to find the part where i talk about this or somebody talks about that just such a pain to do manually and you know maybe we're we're not too far away from the actual edits themselves being made uh, just based on um unwritten prompts and it kind of makes me think of like hey maybe you know an auto gpt type thing could actually sort of work for that in the back end if you chain together a bunch of things you know like editing is one of those tasks that i could imagine being uh, amenable to that as these systems get cheaper at least easier to deploy at scale yeah actually fun story uh, i used descript to edit i think two episodes of the podcast ah. so it, it actually i produced the transcript and it had this feature of like if you have interjection sounds like you know mm, or uh, different pauses or using words like like which you can remove basically it offered to remove all of that automatically and i tried it and it was, it seemed pretty good. But then when I published it, we got like a review that asked us <laughs> oh, to that's stop because right. it was so jumpy and so on. So uh, it definitely allows a lot of things. At the same time, editing audio or video just by editing with transcript is not going to totally work, but it does offer up some new capabilities that are very useful. So the take-home message here is everybody make sure you comment on this episode if it sounds jittery. Your comments are really useful, apparently. Yeah, apparently. <laughs> and last up, we have Meta has open-sourced an AI project that turns your doodles into animations. So this is a small little cute like animated drawings thing to make almost kid-like animations. Uh, they had a web-based version of a tool where you upload a uh, drawing of a single human-like character, 
and then it can make them move around uh in in kind of cute ways so and you can you can choose to make it dance or be funny or jump and walk and yeah this is you know just a sort of exploratory fun thing but at the same time you can easily imagine how this will be part of video game development pretty soon with creating walk loops and so on yeah absolutely and it's another another instance of you know another trend that we've seen which is meta looking to maybe differentiate itself based on how open sourcey they are so like just you know not necessarily building like the gpt4 or like what you know the palm e but instead focusing on making like solid open source models that people really love them for. Um, so, you know, interesting, interesting strategy, maybe to get some, some good PR for recruitment or whatever it is, but uh, definitely consistent with that and something I'm sort of curious to try. Yep. And with that, we are done. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the podcast. Once again, you can go to lastweekin.ai to get the text newsletter and also get the links to all these stories we've discussed for this episode. As always, like we said, we would appreciate a review or if you shared it with people you know who like AI, that would be cool. But we really mostly care about you listening. <laughs> so we'll keep putting these out and please do keep listening.